Welcome, all of you wine and true crime lovers. I'm your host, Brandy, and this is Texas Wine and True Crime. Thank you for being here, friends. Tonight, we are traveling to Port Orchard, Washington, to discuss the unsolved murder of Linda Malcolm. Um, as you know, we had a few, just a few weeks ago, we had Jennifer Bucoats on our show to discuss the Deborah Sue Williamson case out of Lubbock. And tonight, we are joined by her true crime partner, uh, author George Jared. Now, I mentioned The Silent Silhouette, which is a book they both authored about Deborah Sue's case. And they have both um, decided to work on Linda Malcolm's case. So I'm really glad they are both here with us. Um, as last time, I introduced Jennifer Buchholz, who was a former U.S. Army counterintelligence agent and decorated veteran of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. She holds a Master of Science in Forensic Sciences and Master of Arts in Criminal Justice. She has worked for the Arizona Department of Corrections and Officer of the Chief Medical Examiner in New York City. She uh, co-hosts um, the, at the military, American Military University, um, where she is an adjunct professor in criminal justice and forensic science, and she does a podcast, Break the Case, along with George Jared. And author George Jared is joining us to, as well tonight. Uh, he's an award-winning journalist and best-selling true crime author. Um, he's best known for writing um, three other true crime books besides this one here about Deborah's case, which is in West Memphis, The Creekside Bones, and Whispers in the Willows. Jennifer, George, thank you both for being here. Um, I know our listeners are going to be... Um, you know, the, Linda Malcolm's case is, is you know, we, we specifically and mostly do Texas crime. So when we get to travel out of Texas and talk about these unsolved murders in other states, it really just brings awareness. We have so many people that listen outside of Texas. So I, I'm really excited for people to hear um, about Linda's case, uh, what we can do to help, um, you know, get some resolution in this. So thank you both so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having me back. I guess I didn't crash and burn too bad on the last episode. <laughs> yes, you're, we, everybody was. Um, no, Jennifer, I um, I got so many emails and messages about um, yeah. Deborah's case and just your knowledge and, and and people who you know. I told you we have so many listeners that will go to Lubbock. We have a lot of West Texas people, and, and they. You know, over Christmas, I even got some pictures of, of Deborah's home and people that go to visit oh, wow. and really just, um, you know, they feel attached to that case. And so they really appreciated you being here um, and, and giving your insights into that. Um, but how, I think for our listeners, how did you both meet? You both are in two separate states, um, but very passionate about about helping these these um, unsolved crimes and bringing some resolution. So just tell us a little bit about your relationship and how you met. Well, I mean, I guess I'll start. Uh, I was kind of at my wits end. Oh, and by the way, I, I would like to add that I was actually born in Lubbock. I didn't grow up there. Okay. And Debbie's Debbie's um, was actually is actually buried in the same cemetery as my grandparents. Wow. Um, so there's a little bit of there are some personal connections. And Doug, her husband, uh, her widower, he actually lives about an hour and a half or an hour and fifteen minutes from me right now. So. Um, I've actually been up at Jennifer's been up to see him too. So we have a lot of personal connections there. How Jennifer and I met, I was at my wits end with a case that I had been covering as a journalist, um, since 2004. It was the murder of 22 year old Rebecca Gould in Melbourne, Arkansas. And uh, it was the first murder case I ever covered. 
And as a journalist, I've covered, um, I have covered probably three dozen murder cases, probably more if I actually added them up. But she was the very first one. And she vanished out of the home of a friend and um, a, a sort of ex-boyfriend. And her body was found a week later. And I was out there during the week when they were out searching for her. And I got to know her family, especially her father, Dr. Larry Gould. And on um, September 27, 2004, one week afterwards, they found her body um, down an embankment um, near the near the town of Melbourne, about five miles from the sheriff's department. And I was actually out there when they found her body and I saw her. And I it was the most shocking thing that I, obviously that ever happened to me to that point. I just graduated from college. You know, it was my first you know job in journalism. And I saw her. And she wasn't that much younger than me. She was only a couple of years younger than me. And I went back to the sheriff's department. And when I got there, Dr. Larry Gould, her father, um, he came up to me and he asked me, he said, you know, did they find my daughter? Because they, the rumors were going around, you know, there was a bunch of people in the parking lot. There were TV cameras and, you know, media from all over the place. And I told him, I said, Larry, you need to go talk to the sheriff. And he grabbed a hold of me and he said, did they find my daughter? And I said, yes, they did. And he started crying and he just went to his knees and put his head in my stomach and just started crying. And I thought, man, this is, this is a really, I, I couldn't believe this was happening. I met this guy five days before, before that I never knew anything about him, his daughter, anything like that. And so I spent the next, um, gosh, Jen, probably was that a dozen years at least, at least. periodically, at least periodically writing about it the case would never, nothing would ever happen with the case. And um, they didn't have any really good suspects. There was not, there was just nothing about it. And it just kind of went into the doldrums. And um, in 2016, I wrote a book called Witches in West Memphis about the West Memphis three case, because I had covered that extensively um, through the years. I covered it for the Associated Press and the general sun where all the hearings happened in that case. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar uh-huh. with, with West Memphis three um, I interviewed Damien Eccles when he was on death row and I actually broke the story when they got out. And, um, but when I wrote the book, I, Rebecca's case always like it haunted me. Like I have her missing poster still sitting on my desk to this day. Jennifer's seen it many, many times, but still with the original notes that I took from her family. And so in 2016, I wrote the book and I included a chapter about her case. And then in 2017, I included another chapter in another book about her case, a little bit of an update because I'd reconnected with her father. And then in 2018, Catherine Townsend um, contacted me because she wanted to do, uh, she was a reporter for the Discovery Channel. She wanted to do a podcast called Hell and God. And I agreed to do a series of interviews with, with her for that. And the podcast became really popular and in the true crime space. And so um, her Rebecca's case got a lot of national notoriety and it started putting a lot of pressure on the lead detective. It put a lot of pressure on the state police um, to, to finally look in, to look at this case through a different lens because they continue to believe that she was killed by a man that it was some type of a drug related crime. And it just wasn't none of the, nothing that happened her body was removed from the house. She was beaten to death. It looked like because you know there was, it was a pretty bloody mess in there. They found bloody sheets in the washing machine. The mattress had been flipped, and so there was a lot of details that, um, you know, I I was aware of those details and I thought they were important, but the state police didn't seem they were important. Uh-huh. Well, 
Helen gone comes and goes and it's an, it's a fear. I'm not going to lie. There was, it was all over social media. I would spend nights. We would have, you know, comments, three, four, 500 comments on one post on some of these Facebook pages. And it, it got to the point where I was kind of like, not saying I was done, but I needed something to happen because yeah. ev- despite everything that was happening, her case wasn't getting solved. Right. And so one day I'm sitting there on my couch I flip open my laptop and I have an email from a woman named Jennifer Buchholz. And I was like, hmm, I started reading it. And I've told Jennifer this many, many times. I was immediately angry because, first of all, she's a better writer than me, in addition to having a way better resume. (laughs) And so um, I didn't like that. But, you know, I like it now because we're friends. Um, But I in all sincerity, I, I told my wife, I said, somebody really serious just emailed me like this is something serious. Uh And so she asked if she could talk to me for 10 minutes and Jen, I first conversation, I think we both have famously said lasted north of three and a half hours. Mm, Love that. Okay. Okay. Three hours and 22 minutes. (laughs) Yep. That's great. And uh, so I guess we, we became fast friends. Um, Jennifer had never been to Arkansas. I'm not originally from Arkansas. Uh, my wife is from here. Okay. I grew up on the West Coast, which Jennifer grew up in California. So she kind of, she grew up on the West Coast too. And um, within a month, her and her husband were taking a vacation in the middle of February in rural Arkansas. Um, and so they came here um, to spend a week to just like do you know, the kind of the work that you have to do to help solve a case that's been unsolved this long, you know, yeah. Jennifer um, is really into these, um, you know, Jen, like you were, you, you, you wanted to like drive the road, the potential yeah. paths that the killer took to dump her body. Cause it's a very rural area. So you want to get a flavor for that. And something that Jennifer and I learned very, very quickly was that you have to go, you have to be on the ground to study these things. Like there's no, there's no way to supplement being there. And yep. so she came, I introduced her to Dr. Gould and things kind of took off from there. Um, I guess later on we started a Facebook page and Jennifer, one of our first, one of the first <laughs> people to join our page was a uh, Mr. William, AKA Billy Miller. And um, he was the first cousin of Casey McCullough, the guy that, you know, uh, Rebecca had sort of dated and um, And house she was killed in. Yeah. And he, it was his house that she was killed in. And the story is that she dropped him off at work and then he was at work all day. She goes back to his house and she's murdered in the house by his first cousin who never gave a motive for it, (laughs) Uh which is kind of weird. But he was on our page and he was communicating. He was giving theories and he was talking and he was especially talking to Jennifer and we thought that was really interesting because we almost immediately knew from the very beginning that this guy, we thought it was a mole for Casey and his family uh-huh. to try to figure out what we knew because we always know things that we don't reveal publicly in these, in the stuff that we work on. And um, he talked to Jennifer a lot. I mean, Jennifer, I mean, you could kind of talk about mm-hmm. that a little bit, like some of the stuff he talked with Jennifer, was he private messaging you and yes. trying to get information yeah. from you? Okay. Okay. Um, you know, I didn't feel like he was digging that much. I mean, there was a couple things he, uh-huh. you know, passed by me for my opinion, but it's not things that like nobody else did either. 
um, the things we discussed were like things I discussed with dozens of other people. But looking back, I, I don't know that he was necessarily, I mean, I'm sure he was trying to dig a little bit, but he didn't make it super obvious. But there's a couple issues that he focused on a lot more than others. Uh-huh. And one was the timeline of the murder. So his confession and police's narrative is that Rebecca was killed on a Monday morning. But in the messages to me, he talked a lot about Sunday night. And come to find out later on, he talked to his family members about Sunday night. He talked to his wife about Sunday night. Like, he had a fixation with Sunday night. And so I'm still of the theory that this all went down Sunday night and there was more people involved. But that was one of the things. And he honed in a lot on Casey's next-door neighbor. I say next-door. It's a remote area. Uh You could see the neighbor's house, but it wasn't like suburbia, right? Like Uh a regular neighborhood. But... William talked to me a lot about those neighbors and he's like, I think they're suspicious. And he knew their names, which was interesting, you know, but what really piqued my interest is he went out of his way to lie to me about his connection to the family. So I didn't have any idea that he might've been involved in this murder because he was living in Texas at the time of Rebecca's murder with a wife and a kid. And we had no reason to believe he'd been in Arkansas that weekend. So I didn't think he was involved, but I knew he was up to something because I specifically asked him, like, hey, your profile says you're living in the Philippines. How did you come to hear about this case? Like, full oh. well knowing he's the cousin of Casey, right? And all he mm-hmm. said the first time was podcast, which I assume he meant Catherine's Helen Gone podcast, you know, and I just uh-huh. let it go. And then a few months later, I asked a similar question. I'm like, I can't remember if I asked you, but, like, you live across the world. Like, do you have family in Arkansas or do you have any connection to there? And his answer to that one was, well, I've been to all 50 states. So he was totally <laughs> deflecting yeah. and yeah. avoiding telling me his connection uh-huh. to the McCullough family. And so that piqued our interest. But like George said, we just kind of thought he was spying for Casey because we figured he thought we didn't know who he was. Meanwhile, we had this amazing woman that we came to know through this case who had built out Casey's entire family tree. Wow. So as soon as this guy joined the page, she's like, that's Casey's cousin. I'm like, oh, okay. Oh, interesting. and Jen, she's from Lubbock, Texas, ironically yes. enough. Uh, she's a housewife in Lubbock, Texas, Crazy. who built this genealogy Crazy. for us. And this was way before we ever thought about Never Soon, just so you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, he private messaged wow. me and he was commenting in our group. And I don't know if it was an ego thing. It's probably a combination of reasons why he did it, you know maybe had some thrill out of sort of returning to the scene of the crime. You Do know, you think he reached out to you as well? Cause sometimes I feel like as females, I don't know. We talk a lot. We say things, I think more than men. Do you think he thought maybe you would spill something more than George would? I don't, I don't know. What do you think, George? I I don't know if it was that. That's an interesting question because um, in his confession, he talked about me a lot, like how much he hated my guts. And like he said that he wanted to go to one of my, he texted Casey and said he wanted to come to one of my book signings and he just wanted to punch me in my face. And so um, he mentioned me. Yeah. Like he, he mentioned me a lot. Now he mentioned Jennifer a lot too. And he mentioned our Facebook page a lot. But he was much more evasive when he mentioned Jennifer, like he would refer to her as like the P.I. Um, Mm -hmm. But I've told Jennifer this. I have a suspicion that he doesn't know how to 
pronounce her last name or spell it. And so okay. I think that maybe in communications, but he definitely, um, he bought my books like over and over again. Like he had like at least two sets that I know of mm-hmm. and he didn't buy them. He had people that he worked with buy them because he would be out on a rig mm-hmm. and he couldn't like, you know, get on Amazon and then deliver out into the middle of the, you know, the, you know, yeah. you know, Indian ocean. Oh, yeah. And so he would have people who were coming to the rig, bring him the books and, they brought multiple copies. And so he was, I don't know. I think that if I had to guess with him, I think he feels more comfortable with females just as a person. Okay. Because his dad died when he was younger. And then, you know, he's, he has an unusual attachment to his mother. And so I think that maybe that was part of it. I think that he, he did try. I think Jennifer, um, I think he, and Jen, you might disagree with this. I do think he was trying to, lead us to the Sunday night hypothesis, but I don't think he wanted to. I think it was just because he couldn't control himself because a lot mm-hmm. of these guys, and I've interviewed a lot of, of murderers, and they just can't control themselves. They yeah. have to they have to show that they're the smartest person in the room. And I think sometimes when he was talking to Jennifer saying, oh, Sunday night, it's because nobody was focusing on it. But, you know, Jen, we both know this. At one point, you and I did start focusing on Sunday night yeah. a lot. And as soon as we did, that's when the freak out messages from what we've been able to glean, they started ratcheting up. And then, Jen, a couple of months before his arrest, we found out that he was in town. Yeah. That was the turning point for us. Yeah. Yeah. And then you went to investigators and told them? Or how did you handle that when you found that Mm -hmm. when you got that news? We did not. There's a misconception out there. People running around saying, like, we're claiming we solved it. and We're not claiming that at all. Uh We did not actually send my messages to the investigator because we were first trying to get proof that William or his brother or mother had been in town that weekend before we just sent one message to the investigator with nothing to back it up. And so what we were doing, so William had a younger brother who was attending a local high school. And funny how none of Casey's family bothered to bring that up. But so what we were doing is we had a couple really good friends in the Melbourne area, older ladies, and they went to the local high schools and got yearbooks from 2004. And we were hoping we'd find Jeremy Miller, the younger brother, in one of those yearbooks. And then we could go to the investigator and say, listen, uh, this guy was reportedly in town. His bro- look, his brother was attending school. Something's up with this. Um, but he was not in the yearbook. And come to find out, it's because he wasn't in school there long enough for them to include his photo. Um, so we did not take those messages to investigators. But what we did do is the tipster who provided us the information on William, we sent him to the investigator. And he met with Mike McNeil at least a couple times and gave his information about William. Now, um, and I will say, let me say this though, Jen, we were in, in constant communication with the detective in the case and we forward him a lot of information that we got over the months. And I actually talked to him on the phone several times and Jennifer did too. So we were feeding him information and a lot of it turned out to be very pertinent. It was mm-hmm. just on this one particular thing. We wanted to be sure before we said something um, about him, because, you know, I mean, I I've know a lot of detectives. I mean, I deal with detectives quite literally all over the country and their time is valuable and you want to bring something mm-hmm. of value because if you bring something that's just a dud, a lot of times after that, they're just like, okay, 
you know, George and Jennifer brought that guy who had nothing to do with this. You know, we didn't want it to be dismissed like that. Yeah. But internally, the day before he got arrested, which, by the way, he confessed on my birthday um, (laughs) in Oregon, where I grew up, which about an hour from where I grew up in Oregon, um, which is so ironic to me because I live in Arkansas and happened here and he never lived here. Um, But he um, the, the thing of it was the day before. Jennifer and I were on the phone and Jennifer, you remember this. Mm-hmm. You said, is this guy involved? And I said, there's no other way to look at it. He has to be. Yeah. And the other and, reason that we didn't take his name to the investigators, because we knew that tipster had taught, we were in touch with the tipster and we knew yeah. the tipster had met with the investigators. So there was no point in us being redundant until we could dig up something new. So, yeah. Yeah. So you, you you met and started working on Rebecca's case. Then it evolved into Deborah Sue Williams' case. You both wrote a book about it, which I've read twice. I have to say, um, oh, I've encouraged people. I've encouraged thank people you. to get this book because I, I, you know, before I met the both of you, I had been asked to cover this case. And I wanted to, um, I wanted to make sure I did my due diligence with it because it, it, it's an, it's an old case and it's unsolved. And, you know, but, but Jennifer, when you came on and and talked about, you know, boots on the ground research in Lubbock and what you were hearing, Mm -hmm. who you were speaking to details, you know, that police haven't spoken to them since, you know, maybe the first week of, of, of her murder, um, but but Georgia, right? I mean, there's nothing there's nothing more and nothing better than than boots on the ground no. research, being there, talking to the people, because you know what? Stories change, and people forget yeah. things. Mm-hmm. And um, so this this is great. And is there anything else? So now you're working on Linda Malcolm's case, which is what yes. we're going to talk about tonight. Um, so this this happened on April thirtieth, two thousand and eight. Um, in Port Orchard, Washington. So she was a um, Army veteran, uh, uh, sorry, a U.S. Navy veteran. Navy. Navy, and uh, military. Yeah, Navy veteran. Uh, she served nine years in the Navy, and then once she settled down, she stayed in Port Orchard, Port Orchard was working as a paralegal. From, from what I have researched about her, it seemed like she was lovely. People liked her, mm-hmm. her you know. Um, she had friends. Um, she... You know, so now now you're looking into this case. It's unsolved now, 14 years. Um, so so tell us, tell us about this case. Uh, what what can you share? Um, and, and where are where are investigators with it? Where are you with it? You know, tell us about that. Well, I'll tell you how it came um, across our. Yes, plate. please. Is this past summer I put out a little article through American Military University. And um, or basically a newsletter, you know, that goes out to like 20,000 people or whatever. And I put an article in there like, hey, you know, me and George are kind of at a standstill on Debbie's case. So we're looking for case submissions. And we got dozens and we spent the summer going through them all. And Linda's was one that really stuck out to us. And for my personal aspect, a lot of it was because I knew right away and we'll get into this, but like her killer spent an unnecessary amount of time and risk at the crime scene. And that can give us a lot of clues into who the killer is or their relationship to the victim. And so that helps us a lot because we go into a case assuming we're not getting the case file from police and we usually don't. So we have to have something to work off of. Like it, I hate it because I mean, I don't hate it, but like I hate some 
things that we just can't help on because, you know, we got case submissions about a drive-by shooting or somebody who was hit yeah. on the highway, hit and run. And it's like, I don't have the forensic insight. They're not going to share the forensics with us for me to mm-hmm. do anything. So it's like we looked for a case where we felt that the behavioral analysis would be helpful, where we could bring in some experts to help us on certain aspects, and then where we could use podcasting and crowdsourcing uh-huh. to raise awareness for the case and get new tips and leads. Okay, so so you've just been, so y'all have been working on it since this past summer, um, and did you? What what was the first thing that you noticed about her case? What besides the person, which you're right, it can tell us a lot if they hang out at the crime scene for for long mm-hmm. periods of time, um, they feel comfortable there for some reason. Um, mm-hmm. So what else was it that that made you um, gravitate towards this case? Why don't you tell side, George? <laughs> well, I I think for me, like we were we boiled like our case submissions down to a couple. And I told Jennifer that her this case, like we we have a we have a, a, a I don't know what we call them. They're like a, another team that works with us. They're working on a case in West Virginia, which we helped them with some. And we I really like that case, but they were they took it, and um, they're doing a fantastic job, by the way. Um, they're making some real progress in that case. But something about Linda's case just kept like gnawing at me. And I told Jennifer, I said maybe it's because I grew up in the Northwest, and maybe I just want to go to the Northwest and. <laughs> try to help solve a case. I don't know. Um, Then when we started digging into it a little bit, you know, she had been stabbed, you know, Mm -hmm. about the same number of times as, as Debbie and her house had been torched. Like they had intentionally set a fire. And so this was a, you know, a very, you know, when she was found, she was, she didn't have any clothing on. There were definitely some signs that she, she put up quite a fight. And so we, and we've actually brought in some experts who kind of validated that for us. So I, I just thought, you know, she was in the Navy, um, you know, Jennifer served in the military. So, you know, mm-hmm. there's kind of that angle too. you know, um, yeah. she served her country. And here's the thing. What we learned about her was that she was a lot of fun to be around. Jen, I think we could say it maybe safely like that. She, oh, yeah. uh, she had a she liked to party and do a lot of stuff, which is fine. She was a single woman. You know, she could do whatever she wants in life. And like Jennifer said, we can't without the case file we cannot do forensic analysis i mean we can do maybe a little but we're only speculating behavioral analysis is a different that's a different level you know if we can figure out what triggered this person the behavior pattern which jennifer is i mean she's as good as anybody i've ever dealt with in my life she is a master at it and um, so obviously if she gets excited about it, I get excited about it because I know she's going to, I know what she'll do. <laughs> so yeah. um, that's kind of from my perspective, why we chose her case. Um, and uh, Jen, I mean, what were some of the behavioral aspects of it that intrigued you? Well, so Linda was stabbed approximately 18 times and there's, I say approximately because there's actually so many stab wounds. It's hard to pinpoint the exact number, but, a lot more than was necessary to kill her. And I know that because I actually met with the current coroner in that county. Um, Really, really gracious, awesome guy. He's not the one that did Linda's autopsy, but he's very familiar with her case. We sat down and talked for a while about it and talked through some of the aspects of it. And he explained to me that she had at least four lethal injuries, meaning any one of those stab wounds would have killed her. 
Uh-huh. Not instantly, but quickly. So her liver was punctured twice, and he explained uh-huh. that stab wounds to the liver are often fatal. Uh-huh. She was basically stabbed in her brainstem too, um, and then through her lung, or sorry, through her heart and her lung. So any one of those by itself could have killed her. But somebody, you know, went to a, you know, a higher level overkill and delivered more wounds than was necessary to kill her. So that's a clue. Uh-huh. And um, then they took the time to set her house on fire and likely either had to seek out an accelerant. I don't, we're just in the kind of early stages of analyzing it, but I don't okay. tend to think this was overly premeditated, um, maybe premeditated by a day or two. But even so, you've got to figure out what knife you're going to use, how are you going to get in the house, and then how are you going to set the fire afterwards. Um, we've talked to a couple arson experts, and it looks like an accelerant was used, but in more places than one in the house. So again, it's just somebody staying on scene, taking that immense risk, rather than just grabbing the weapon and running. Uh-huh. Um, and that, again, can give us a lot of insight into the killer and the relationship to Linda, the victim. So Jennifer, when we talked about, when we were um, discussing Debbie's case, we were talking about looking at what a victim is doing 24 to 48 hours before they're murdered, mm-hmm. where they were, who they were with, was anything said? What was Linda doing? Do, do y'all know where she was the day before she was killed, who she was with, who she was associating with? We have filled in a couple gaps, but there's a lot of gaps remaining. And that's one way that crowdsourcing can help because it brings people out that knew the victim, you know, and can help hopefully fill those gaps of the timeline. Uh Um, So she was killed either on a Tuesday night or early Wednesday morning. On that Tuesday afternoon, the last charge or debit from her bank account was at a Safeway grocery store. What was it like 2.30 or so, George, I think? Yeah, I think it was, um, yeah, it was around 2.30. A, the bartender at Linda's favorite watering hole said, I went there when I was in town, met the bartender. She remembered Linda coming in around lunchtime, having a bite to eat and one drink. Um, and then apparently Linda went to Safeway. Beyond Safeway, we don't know yet. Um, so we have several hours of that day that we've not been able to fill. And that's something that we're hoping the locals can help us with or her friends. But she was preparing to move the next day. Um, She was in a rental house that she'd been in for 11 years. Um, The landlord was scheduled to demolish it in the next couple weeks. So he had given her a notice that the house is going to be torn down and, you know, you need to find another place to live. So what, sorry, Thursday was going to be May 1st. So she was due to move on the first. So we're pretty sure she was probably packing some things or making some arrangements to get her things packed, figure out how to move them. We know that she was looking into renting a Uh U-Haul. I haven't found yet if she actually reserved one, Um, but she was talking to some friends about getting help to move. And there's at least a couple people we've talked to who said they offered up their trucks and themselves to come help her move. Um, So she had that plan in her near future. But in terms of the rest of the time, Tuesday and into that evening and night, we are not sure yet. Has any friends or family come forward and said they spoke to her that night? 
she sent out a, a very strange email to all of her family. Uh-huh. And um, it was something that she didn't typically do, like to include all of them in this mass email. And it was kind of like a melancholy email. And, you know, talking to the family members, Jen, I think we've come to, we've not come to the conclusion, but we it's it's suspicious. Mm-hmm. Whether um, she wrote it or not? At least. <clears throat> yes. Okay. Yeah. Because okay. It, it was so out of character for her. Mm-hmm. And it was, Jen, what were the exact words? I'm trying to think right now. It was it's, like... It's, it's not just one or two sentences. It's a couple paragraphs. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and at some point, we'll put the whole text of it out. But okay. I think we're trying to dig around a little bit more about that before revealing sure. the full content. But mm-hmm. it was something that her family has said was out of the ordinary. Number one, it was out of the ordinary because she sent it to, like, all of her siblings in one email. Uh-huh. And then the content of it seemed out of the ordinary. So it could be nothing. Or it could be, you know, a huge clue that maybe somebody had access to her computer. Um, or at least access stamp- to her email, yeah. Or email, right, right, right. Um, the timestamp on that, though, is actually very early morning Tuesday, so uh-huh. approximately 24 hours before she's killed. Um, and there was something – oh, we have spoken to somebody whose name we're not going to reveal at this point. Uh-huh. who did say they spoke to Linda Tuesday evening for about an hour. Um, but we are still looking into that and going to try and see if police can confirm that story before we put the details of that out. But aside from that, none of her family spoke to her Tuesday night. Nobody else that we've talked to, and there's been a lot of people we've talked to so far that knew her, nobody else we've come across said that they saw her or talked to her Tuesday night. Yeah, and another interesting detail about that, she she didn't have any contents in her stomach when they did her autopsy. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So we know that she ate during the day at the bar and grill. So it looks like she probably, if she ate anything later than that, uh-huh. it, uh, it was early in the evening, possibly. I mean, because there's some conflicting stories. The family's told stories about finding that there were a bunch of crab legs in a trash can uh-huh. um, at the house. We don't know. I mean, it could be true. I mean, we're not saying that it's not, but we haven't found any real evidence for that. But that was kind of one like small story that circulated, which might indicate that she they thought that there was enough crab legs that maybe there was somebody there dining with her that night. But she didn't have anything in her stomach. So we don't know. Hmm. These are some of the details that, you know, one of the funny things I think Jen would attest to this that we have found out is that a lot of these details that get out into the public or are told to the family are very, very inaccurate. And mm-hmm. so sometimes it's untangling this web of things that are not true. I mean, in Debbie's case, my God, Jen, we had to go through, oh, there were so many stories mm-hmm. that were just, I mean, yeah. I don't want to say they were lies, but they were definitely not true. So whatever you want to call that. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of in the process working with Linda right now is we have all these stories and some of the family members, they don't mean to like they're not trying to give us false information. It's not that at all. No, it's just right. what they were told or right. what they thought they observed. And, you know, a lot of times what they observe or what they're told is they're in a state of shock. I mean, when they get uh-huh. to the, her house, you know, her, you know, their loved one has just been murdered and, and they're just, they're not doing it like um, an investigator or like I'm an investigative journalist. Like I show up at a scene, you know, I showed up at a scene one time where a guy, he was a schizophrenic and had been shot by the police 
And literally there were like bullet holes all throughout this guy's house. And there was still blood and brain matter in the holes. And the dad was there of this schizophrenic guy. Mm -hmm. And he, as soon as he saw it, he just collapsed. And I talked to him a few months later and he didn't even remember seeing the bullet holes or the whole, like the guy's TV had two or three bullet holes in it. Mm -hmm. And he just had to, he had to like tune that part out. Yeah. It's like, they, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it was gruesome. And so you deal with stuff like that. So that's, That's one of the, and especially with older cases, like a couple of the ones we've worked recently, it's mm-hmm. harder because the memories are longer, you know. Um, but I will say this in Linda's case, her family has been really wonderful to work with. Oh my um, gosh, they're amazing. Yeah, they really are. And we, we don't say that lightly because we've dealt mm-hmm. some, with some family members who are not wonderful or amazing to work with at all. Brandy knows all about it. Yes. And I don't <laughs> know. Sure. And I told Jennifer, I just don't understand that. Like, that's very hard for me mm-hmm. to wrap my head around. When it comes yeah. to Brandy people trying, real thing. I know, just trying <laughs> to help, you know, people who are trying to bring uh, some, some, you know, a little bit of peace and, and closure to to you, mm-hmm. um, to to find out what happened to their loved one. It's it's hard for me to wrap my head around around that kind of behavior. Brandy, but I had I had a lengthy conversation with the CEO of CrimeCon about this because you know they uh, deal with this every year yep. when they try to develop their program and their. Um, you know, the conference that they put together and him and I had a lengthy conversation. He's like, there's a lot of, I don't want to say just problem family members in some of these cases that are really, really hard to deal with. Yeah. So did any neighbors hear anything? Yes. <laughs> Actually, mm-hmm. the neighbor is, the next door neighbor is the one that called 911 okay. at 3.58 a.m. on that Wednesday morning. And based on the reports we have so far, she woke up to a sound that she described as possible gunshots or an explosion. Um, her husband, she woke up her husband. She, they look out the window. They see Linda's house engulfed in flames. So they call 911. The husband runs towards Linda's house. Another neighbor, two doors down, he comes out as well. And they both make an attempt to enter Linda's house, knowing that she might be in there, but they were unable to. Um, the house was just, it was too engulfed at that point and overcome by, you know, flames and smoke that they just, they would have died trying to go in there to save her. Um, and I'm actually glad they didn't because she was already dead. Um, and we know that because in her autopsy, it says there is no soot or anything in her trachea or lungs. So she had passed away before this fire was started. Um, so, yeah, so those neighbors heard, actually all the neighbors were out, you know, by the time the fire department showed up and everything, of course, everybody's awake and kind of watching what's going on. So, yes, they did hear. We think the sound that maybe woke up that one neighbor was either a window that blew out of Linda's house because it appears there's at least two uh-huh. windows that kind of exploded outwards or possibly one of the tires on her car exploding. Um, so that may one of the one or both of those may have woken up the neighbor. But yes, so there were witnesses in a way. So, George, you said she was single. So no boyfriend at this time. Suitors. No, she had dated quite a few guys. Um, and you know, she, she had a very, um, 
I, I, I hesitate to say it, but she was kind of promiscuous. Um, you know, she, she dated a guy. She was single. And again, like I've said before, you know, she can do. Yeah. She's, a, yes. she's mm-hmm. an adult. I mean, do she can do want. what she wants. Yeah. I mean, she's, I mean, I, I definitely don't pass judgment on anybody. Well, she so was, are, she was what, know, 47 years old, 48 years old mm-hmm. at this time? 47. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Living her best life. I'm almost yeah. there. Yeah, just, <laughs> <laughs> right. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, except for there's one part of that my wife probably would prefer that I didn't. Maybe, maybe it wasn't promiscuous, but yeah, living the <laughs> best life at 40. Oh, yeah, yeah, mine too. Years mine old. too. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, she. Obviously, there's some people that, yeah. you know, we have tracked down and want to track down on that mm-hmm. front. Um, but she has she dated several people. There were, you know, Jen, I don't know, probably two or three kind of ex-boyfriends that were mm-hmm. semi in the picture, I think is the best yeah. way to put it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, she still had some contact with some of those people. And, you know, we, we want to talk to them. I mean obviously in other cases, you know, we don't, we're never afraid to go and knock on a door and have a conversation with somebody. Um, because, you know, more than likely there's only one person who committed this crime. So the vast majority of people we talk to have nothing to do with it, or, mm-hmm. but they might have some information or intelligence that we need, um, mm-hmm. to move it forward. So we've got to contact them as many as possible. And we try to make sure that they understand that we're not accusing them of anything. No. Um, but I mean, we're not afraid to ask a tough question either. You know, I've, uh-huh. you know, I've looked a guy in the face many times and said, Hey, did you, did you kill this person? And uh-huh. so, uh, anyway, but that's, yeah, that's kind of the situation right there with, uh, her love interest, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, how, so it's been 14 years. What are the police doing? I, I assume this is an open, active investigation. Um, where are they still talking to people? Are we, is this, is this like Debbie's case where they've talked to everyone once and then they just haven't touched base again? What What are your thoughts on that? Well, Jen, I would say that we're trying to give them the benefit of the doubt at this point um, because it is kind of new that we got involved. Um, Jen, you've been in lots of contact with the, the police in, in Port Orchard mm-hmm. and um I mean, I don't know if they've gotten to the stage where they're re-interviewing people, but they seem to be um, interested in us helping them, Jen, don't you think? Yeah, they're, they've been really receptive. I mean, they scheduled a meeting for me when I was up there in November, and we sat down and I explained, you know, our university team concept and that this isn't some kind of competition or whatever, but we've learned, me and George have learned that we have skill sets to bring to the table that can sometimes draw people out or get people talking that won't talk to law enforcement. And that has worked wonderfully in the past. And then Mm -hmm. we can pass on the information. And the other thing is people can come to me and George and if they want to remain anonymous, great. I'll just take your content of whatever you tell me and pass it to the detectives so they can use it how they see fit. Um, But yeah, we've sent them many emails at this point and we always get a very kind response we do know, and they flat out told us we are a tiny department, uh-huh. you know, and we we are stretched thin. Yeah. And so I just explained, let us take up some of that slack for you because we're going to share everything with you. We're not, we're here to help you, augment you, you know, find new leads and tips uh-huh. and analysis that can help your investigation hopefully, hopefully lead you to the killer. Because in the end, I mean, me and George can't arrest anybody. Right. So we need to, we need to coordinate with that investigating authority. And so far they've been great. And we're going to go back up in April. Okay. 
it'll be the 15 year anniversary. And um, the local newspaper actually interviewed the police chief and he welcomed our efforts and said they would accept any and all information and said that they were planning on something for the 15 year anniversary. So hopefully we'll get to meet him in person next time. But so far, they've been fantastic. So it's been that's great to it's hear. It's been really nice to have, yeah, investigators that are willing uh-huh. to take our information and look into it. Well, because Jennifer, you and I talked about this with the Lubbock PD, right? Like, what what mm-hmm. benefit do you have to keep all of that to yourself? You know, this is something yeah. you're trying to do and help. <laughs> yeah. You know, so yeah. so and, and 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 I told you last time. I feel like it should be reciprocated at, when you when so many years go by. You know, this this yeah. is something too with a few cases locally here where where I am in Texas. You know, not wanting to give the public more information, but it's been forty or fifty years. You know, why yeah. not? Why not give it? Why yeah. not give that report to people who 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 want to help? And, and who are sure. local and, and maybe can bring new eyes, fresh ears to to, yeah. to this. I mean, what is it going to hurt at this point, right? Yeah, after 40 years, 40, 50 yeah. years, that technique has not worked and it's not going to. Yeah. So in that case, in Linda's case, you know, we're on a much shorter time frame. That's right. Years, um, you know, I, the detective who's on it now, I don't think she, well, I don't know how new she is to the department, but she didn't work it in the beginning. So she's kind of new to the case. But I also explained to her, because I guess the police chief was apprehensive that I was going to walk in there with like a Freedom of Information Act request and try to get the whole case file. And I told her, you know what? I don't need it right now. <laughs> Me and George and our team, we actually prefer to kind of start fresh and unbiased without knowing what went on in the beginning. And let's see what we can uncover on our own. And then they can use that and compare it to their files. Now, if we get a year or two down the road, uh-huh. you know, hopefully if not, you know, no arrest has been made, then maybe hopefully we can share some documents to give us a little more insight. But for now, like we have so many people to talk to and leads to chase down on our own, even without that file, we're fine. I really like that you guys do that. I, I think it does offer just a, f- a fresh perspective and, f- yeah. and, com- and, and you know, not knowing what was said right by that particular person at the time. Yep. Um, so I, I really, I really like that you guys yeah. do that. So one thing I wanted to bring up, um, you, she was moving. Now I read that she was moving into Belfair. So was that close to Port Orchard or is that further away? And she was taking a new job. Yes, she was switching jobs. Uh-huh. And I forget what the distance actually is to Belfair. It's a little ways away. Okay. I can't remember. The yeah, mileage. it's it's, it's not it's it's not. I mean, it's it's, it's not, not too far. far. No, yeah. it's not too far. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's not right next door, but yeah, um, it's not very far. But yeah. So she had um, been hired on at a new paralegal type job. Mm-hmm. She had signed the lease for an apartment. She had put the deposit down on the Saturday before her death. So yeah, she was in the stages of kind of shifting. You know, kind of a new stage in her life. I guess you could say. Do you think that had anything to do with what happened to her? A sense of urgency? No, I mean. Because you don't think this was premeditated or you think it was a more of a. uh, Well, I think like Jennifer said, if it was premeditated, it was like if it was long premeditated, it was very poorly executed because Mm -hmm. uh, stabbing somebody with a knife is not a pleasant thing to do. Um, for the person who's doing it, uh, you know, obviously the person who's receiving it, 
it's not pleasant, but I mean, just to feel that human body, you know, like right next to your hand, yep. stabbing them. That's a very intimate experience. That is very, I hate yes. to, or not hate, it's grotesque. And it's not mm-hmm. something that most people can do. I mean, honestly. Yeah. So it's if it also was, hard. <laughs> like it's, it's physically, also hard. It's uh, yes. I mean, it's very she, physically taxing, you know, uh-huh. you can, I mean, plunge, yeah. I mean, and so you would think if it was like pre premeditated, like a real premeditation mm-hmm. that it would have been, you know, they come with a gun, they different come with weapon. A plan, yeah. Yeah. yeah, different weapon, yeah. Um, you know, uh, burn the house down with her asleep inside, maybe because she did drink a lot. So, you know, mm-hmm. they knew that, you know, at some point in the night, she'd have some drinks, she'd fall asleep, you set the house on fire, she's probably gone anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's pre people, a lot of people understand premeditation, legally premeditation, you can premeditate something moments before you do it, it doesn't have to be, sure. you know, like this length of time. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it was because she was I don't think it was. There's one train of thought that we've had one and and we're not getting into to specific theories yet because we honestly don't have enough information uh-huh. to attach ourselves to a theory. Sure. But there is one train of thought where her leaving could. We do have one aspect we're looking at where that could have been a factor, but I don't know how high that is on our list yet. But yeah. you never know. Tomorrow mm-hmm. we might wake up and uh-huh. we might get a phone call or an email from somebody that vaults that to the top of the list yeah sure what do you yeah, it'll be just i was gonna say it'd be interesting in like a year to listen to this episode again and see where we are oh yeah <laughs> this is kind of cool to capture our kind of our early on thoughts about the case so yeah this and jennifer good. like i told you this my platform is yours i my this <laughs> is why i do this because i can we, we can just spread the word like that. That's why mm-hmm. we do this. We have victim families on to, to, to sure. shed light um, on, on their loved ones cases. And so if there's any updates or anything you want to get out that you can say, you know, I know you put sure. it in your group, which I'm going to share um, on, on our social media pages. Um, so people Wonderful. can start looking and being aware and following and, and see what you and George are uncovering. Um, but yeah, anytime. Anytime there's an update in anything you and George are working on, um, you know, this platform is yours. So, you Great. know, please, please feel free to come back. Yeah. Um, I did have a question about the murder weapon. Has it ever been found? What, what type of knife um, was used? Any details mm. around that? Our nothing knife, found. nothing found, but Jen, our knife expert believes mm-hmm. it was a kitchen knife. Ah. Well, he said it's consistent with a kitchen knife. There's a couple other styles he could not rule out at this time. But it is, he's confident it's a single-edged blade versus a double that was used in Debbie's case. So kitchen knives, like for the audience that's not sure of the difference, so a kitchen kitchen knives all have just one sharpened side, right? So that's right. a single-edged blade. Um, there are military-style knives and other knives out there that have both sides of the blade sharpened. But in Linda's case, he's pretty confident it only had one sharp edge. And that's obviously consistent with a kitchen knife, but it's consistent with others too. Um, And not serrated, so not like a bread knife, you know, Uh but a a straight, flat, sharp edge. And he thinks the killer injured themselves to the point of maybe having to go to the ER. So we're hoping that police looked into that back in the day. Yeah. Uh But it's also possible that this person, if they sliced the, you know, the inside of their fingers, Uh depending which way the blade was facing or the palm of their hand, they could still have a scar. 
and mm-hmm. somebody might know that. So we're going to have a whole episode on Break the Case, interviewing Jeff Schaefer, who's our knife expert, and he's going to okay. give a ton more insight. <laughs> but he's fascinating. He, I, I'll tell you this, Brandy, our arson and our, our uh, knife expert, both of them, they are top notch. I yes. mean, they are the best. No questions asked. They, I mean, I hate to say this. I don't mean this humorously, but like we didn't tell our arson expert that um, that Linda had been stabbed. Uh-huh. We just sent him some information, you know, like the reports and some pictures. And he immediately, within 90 seconds, he said, hey, we got a major problem here. I don't think this was just an arson. This woman was definitely shot or stabbed because something else is going on here because there's blood underneath her. And we hadn't even told him. So within, I mean, 90 seconds, he picked up on that. So yeah. um, these guys are awesome. Yeah. Well, that's great. And that's something that we offer to the investigating authority, too, because police departments don't have a knife expert on hand, you know, and uh-huh. or, or generally don't have an arson expert either. And, you know, these guys are like us. They're volunteers, but they're experts in their field, and they're willing to volunteer a few hours of their time to dissect those photos and give us their feedback. And then we give that to the police department because that could be extremely helpful to their case. Mm-hmm. And so that's just something else yeah. that we bring to the table. I mean, their resumes are almost as good as Jennifer's. Oh, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> I know, George. I was telling her how impressed I was last time. <laughs> Uh, well, you know, here's my, Brandy. This is my problem with Jennifer is that she tries to undersell herself every time we do anything, and so I have to. I only. I don't point out. I don't. I don't. It's not hyperbole. I just point out what she actually has done and where she's been, and it kind of speaks for itself. Oh, you guys, you're all are awesome. Well, you you know what? Okay, so um, I was I was thinking about the DNA. So I'm going to assume you either. Do you do you know forensically what they have or you don't know? No, we do not know. Okay. We have no idea. Yeah, we don't know. Okay. Yeah. We know that, you know, we do have pictures um, of the house inside and out. Uh-huh. And I will say I would be surprised if they did not recover some DNA. So, well, Jen, I think we could go a little step further. We do believe that they potentially do have. Yeah. Not that we know that they've got DNA. Well, let's say this. We know they have DNA. We don't know that it's related to the crime, but they do have, mm-hmm. we believe they have some DNA. We have some pretty strong indicators that they do have some DNA. Yeah. But we don't know what that is just yet. And okay. so um, that's why we can't speculate just yet. Okay. Yeah. I do. I want to go back to the Crab Lakes. And I, and I find this mm-hmm. a little interesting because she's moving. And Crab Lakes stink if you... Mm-hmm. move them from a freezer to a refrigerator thinking you're going to cook them. Um, I'm curious to know if the shells were empty or if she had, because she had nothing in her stomach and you would think if she would have had yeah. the crab at any period, whether in the early evening or late in the evening, um, she would have, they would have found that. I mean, in my opinion, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know, but I am curious because she is moving and also, I think as a female, if I'm packing boxes, getting ready, I've got a big move the next day. Am I really cooking something like that at night? Probably not. I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm busy getting my stuff together. I, I'm trying to figure out mover. I'm trying, you know, it seems that that would be something that's kind of a date night meal, right? right? 
not really a single um, woman getting ready to go and move the next day. I don't know. Like that's just my brain kind of running through this. Um, well, Jen, we we actually have some other indicators that there was possibly a romantic evening going on that night. Um, I don't know how much of those details we're going to delve into at this point until we chase them all down. But there is yeah. some indication that she had a guest that night and possibly they were having a, a night together. Now, Jen, I don't think we've ever even been able to confirm about the. I mean, the family says the crab legs were there, but I don't think we've right. ever been able to independently no. confirm it. Yeah, I don't um, want to put that out as fact. I will. Uh-huh. Okay, so here's something that just came to mind. So when she went to Safeway that Tuesday afternoon, she did spend over a hundred dollars. So uh-huh. that could be consistent with buying crab legs because yep. they're not cheap. Um, and why go spend a hundred dollars in groceries when you're about to move? Yeah, when you have to move them, right? Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. You're in, you're emptying your refrigerator. You yeah. know, you're not adding to yeah. it. Yeah. And we yeah. don't know what was found in the fridge. Um, it was from her family members that arrived a day or two after her murder that they said they observed what they thought were crab legs in a garbage can. Right, George? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we don't, and, like I said, we don't have the case file, so uh-huh. we can't 100% confirm yeah. that at this point. Yeah. And Jen, as far as her not having food in her stomach, I think Jennifer schooled me on this a time or two. Usually it's about a four-hour gestation period or ingestion period in your stomach. Mm-hmm. So if you eat at 6, in the, at 6 p.m. by 10, 10.30, your yeah. stomach is going to shrink down and just about the food will be gone. So she could, if she was, and again, we don't know exactly when she was murdered. So mm-hmm. some of these details are hard. It, you know, we're kind of there's a term called spitballing and we're kind of spitballing like when she may have died. Uh So it's kind of hard to determine these finite details until we have some more firm times, excuse me, when she, when she possibly ate or, um, but the, the caveat to that is Jennifer and I think that we're able to, we're going to be able to um, put those dots together because we think we do have enough information that, at some point, and I hate to be so vague, but no, it's okay. like I said, a few months, a few months from now, we might come back on and we can just spill everything. So, yeah, well, look, and, you know, the killers out there, they're probably listening. And here's the thing, like her window of death is almost a 12 hour window. So mm-hmm. the last known proof of life we have is her purchase at Safeway. Now, that's not even 100 percent proof of life because we don't have video of her using her debit card. Right. But. For the moment, let's assume that it was her using her own debit card that afternoon. Uh-huh. But we don't know what she did after that. And then fire department's not there until 4 in the morning. So that leaves a 12, 13-hour window <clears throat> of death. And I told George, I'm like, her stomach might be empty because she got killed before dinner time, And whatever she yeah. ate for lunch was gone. And then the person decided, of, you know, I, I got to cover this up. Or they come back in the night. Uh-huh. Because as Alan, our arson expert, told our other team, most arsons are set after midnight because neighbors are asleep, you yeah. know, people are in bed. So we have a pretty large window of death right now um, that we're working with. And like George said, over time, I think we'll be able to narrow that down. Um, I know that there's a lot of information you can't share. I really appreciate you both coming on here and really just giving some insight. And, and really, Jennifer, I told you this last time. 
for for what you both do and to, and to help and to be so open with them with um, police departments and and really just trying to to bring some closure and some answers to these families you know this this is the type of selfless thing that um you know that that the world needs there's a lot I was just listening the other day I think there are you know, they're talking about how many unsolved cases are in our big cities and our in our big states, and it's unbelievable. And we know that there's not enough manpower in the in nope. um, police officer. You know, very very few um, have cold case units, right? If if they're lucky yes. enough to have yeah. a big force, possibly. But but it's there. It's just so much. There's just so much that goes on. Sure. So for what you guys are doing, um, I thank you again, uh, and, and and just bringing exposure. To Linda's case, um, is there anything that we haven't mm-hmm. talked about or shared that you that you want our listeners to know, or what can we do um, to help? Yeah, um, I think I was going to pitch our Facebook group. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, it's called Unsolved Murder of Linda Malcolm, and her last name is spelled M A L C O M. It's a little bit of a unique uh-huh. spelling, mm-hmm. but we encourage anybody to join the group. We encourage anybody to make posts. We are not the type of administrators that just are pushing information out. We want interaction from the group members. We want brainstorming, analysis. If you have a skill set that you think is applicable, please email us or join the group or whatever, because that's the beauty of crowdsourcing is I think everybody has something that they can bring to the table to help with an investigation. And the more people thinking about a case, the better. So that's always our goal. George and I do have some expertise, but by no means are we complete experts. Like we said, you know, we don't, we're not knife experts. We're not arson experts. So we know there's people out there that can assist. And so please, you know, join our effort and join our group. And if you think of anything, let us know. And I will share that group um, in our social media pages. Um, I have already joined it. So um, I will, I will make sure that our listeners um, know how to access that as well. Um, Anything about the case about Linda that that you want to share that we haven't um, discussed already? What do you think? George? Um, Well, I, this is the thing that we've learned in the past through these, these other cases we've worked Mm -hmm is that people with particular skill sets, and I'll use an example, we have a friend who's a social worker. You, it, just, just thinking about it, you would think, okay, what could a social worker bring in a realm like this? It turns out a lot. And she lives in Florida, and she has brought so much um, positive impact to our efforts Mm-hmm. through her thought process. So I think that sometimes people get into this thing, well, I'm in this profession that has nothing to do with maybe solving a murder and I have nothing to offer. So I don't want to talk because Jennifer knows this. We get messages all the time from people like I didn't. This is no joke. Right before I got in here with you guys, I was getting messages from a guy who works in the ag industry. He develops corn and soybean like varieties. And he had like 15 questions about Rebecca Gould's murder case. And every one of his questions was really, really good. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, and of course I answered him. I'm sitting there talking to him and every one of them, like they're thought provoking. And sometimes it's not even there. He, he, and and Jenna, I'll tell you this. He asked, he goes, so were, did they do soil sampling on like her clothing to see if she could have possibly been in more than one location? And I said, no. And I had never thought of that. Like I, exactly. and, And this guy asked me this 15 minutes before we started recording. And I'm like, 
That is a wonderful question. I can guarantee you that in rural Arkansas, they probably didn't do that. But it's just one of those things like I never would have thought of it, but he would. So I just want everybody to join because we don't know. In Debbie's case, her widower lived in Missouri. So if we only concentrated in Texas trying to get, you know, Uh people to join the page or people to provide their expertise in Texas, her widower lived in Missouri. We might have missed him. Mm-hmm. Now, fortunately, we had a cell phone number for him. Um, yeah. But just because, you know, you're in one place, I mean, Texas is, I mean, I'm from Texas. It's like, you know, the biggest state ever and the most awesome. But you know what is, <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm just plugging it, you know. Um, but, you know. Um, Even though it takes us like, just as long to get from where I am in Central Texas to West Texas as it does for me to drive right? to South Dakota. But I'll, right. I'll just. Uh, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Dallas is the midway point. When I go to see my parents in Lubbock, it's uh-huh. the midway point for me. To get, so I, I completely sympathize with that. And I've, I've been to Dallas many, many times. I'm a huge Cowboys fan too. So Jen's a 49ers fan. So please don't hold that against me. Oh, I won't, Jennifer. Um, I won't. Yeah. Number one lead. I will say. So, that, now, now you see, she just said that. Yeah. Do you see how calmly she just says that? Like. That's how she spits out the things on her resume. <laughs> I love it. George and I, we we are both kind of lead host on a podcast, but we co-host both of them. So um, George's is called Diamond State Murder Board, and he's the, the primary host on there, but I appear on a lot of his episodes. And then my podcast is called Break the Case through AMU, and the our, we're going into season three. I literally was just putting our promo together today on Linda's case. It should be out next week. And then we will start the season in January and we have many episodes planned. So if, you know, obviously people are listening to this, they like true crime podcasts. So we would appreciate if you guys would tune into our others as well, because you'll get a ton more insight and information on Linda's case as we work through it. That's great. Well, I will share um, the links to your your podcast. It's on Spotify, Apple, all of that too, right? They can access yeah. wherever they listen to yes, their I music heard. and podcast. Yep. Perfect. Yep. All right. See, and I named my podcast. It's perfectly named for you, Brandy. Yes, I mean, it is. Diamond State Murder Board. <laughs> I was just thinking that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, thank you so much for thank taking you. the time to let us talk about this case because I think we're going to make good progress. Well, I'm um, wishing you and George the best of luck talking to everyone. Um, I'm going to be sharing this case um, with our listeners as we are tonight, um, bringing Linda's, um, her unsolved murder to the light and and hopefully, you know, with, with you and George, boots on the ground, going there in April with whatever you have uncovered already and the people you've spoken to, I, I hope, I hope maybe we'll see a book out of it. Maybe. You might. Maybe. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, and Brandy, we I only have like one request. <laughs> we do like to write. That's true. I only have one request for you. Could you pair us with a nice cab or Merlot? Because that's kind of the range that Jennifer and I are in. Agreed. Yes. Yes, of course. I, and I can probably give you some of the best small little places to go in Texas. Um, oh, where you can have oh. the absolutely, you can have the best wine. In fact, I just had a winemaker on my show um, last night, and he they just built an Airbnb on top of their tasting room, which overlooks um, the mountains at Fort Davis. What? Oh, yep. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yep. 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 Wow. Yeah, okay. and, and they have like six wines, and wow, and they sent us five of them. Um, 
uh, and it, it's delicious. And it's just these little, you know, it's, it's like I would have never known about Chateau Wright. I would have, they wow. contacted me and, you know, this, it's just, it's been so, this, this podcast really, you know, um, I, I've got to meet so many neat people like you and so many people that are just trying to do great things. And then to bring, bring these winemakers in this very small community of Texas winemakers, I will say, um, on the show, um, talking about their hard work and their passion. And, and I know how much you're passionate about this. So, so I get, I feel like I get to, um, bring people's passions to this and, and, yes. and, and give it and, and give it to people who, who are interested in listening. And you're right. There are so many people that can offer something and, and they may yeah. not think they can, but, um, you know, there's, Trust me. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I, and I, and I always encourage people to do the same in our group. And, um, mm -hmm. so if, if anybody knows any information about this case, what should they do? If somebody's listening and said, you know what, I knew somewhere, I knew someone in that area, or I'm from there, which we see a lot, you know, what, what can they do? Contact us. That would be the first yep. step. Okay. Contact can, us and we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out once they contact us, how they want to remain anonymous, who mm -hmm. they want to talk to. They can just tell us, I mean, we have gotten so many, Jennifer, you, I mean, my gosh, how many tips have we gotten oh. from somebody late night mm -hmm. there's just this facebook messenger click and i'm like oh I, this is so funny so one time jennifer and i were at our wits end um it was right around the time we started a facebook page i think but we just weren't getting anywhere like there were in rebecca's case we weren't getting anything and that night jennifer and i were talking she's like i just where's this going now and i'm just like i don't know i said something will pop up and that night we got I get a message on Facebook Messenger from a girl who had dated Casey McCullough in the past. And Gosh. I'm like, she goes, can I talk to you right now? And I'm like, yeah. So I call her or she calls me. I give her my cell phone number. We talked for about 20 or 30 minutes. And of course, I waited about 10 minutes after that because I was just so giddy in, inside of my heart because I knew I was going to call Jennifer and tell her this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I said, hey, guess what? She goes, what? And I was like. I just talked to one of Casey's ex-girlfriends and I mean, she says, are you kidding me? And I said, no. And it just floored her. And of course it floored me too. But, um, you know, every day the sun comes up and something new is revealed. That's right. Yeah. And you never know who's listening. You never know who's listening. Mm -hmm. You never know who's following your groups, you know? Yeah. So we set up a, a call it just like a confidential tip email. It's tips at justice for the number four Linda.com. And what we can always assure people, like we kind of talked about this earlier, but if you want to sign anything into that email, we'll just we'll throw up all your identifying information out of it and I'll just take the content of it and pass it to the detective. If you don't want to call law enforcement directly or you don't want to reveal your information or whatever, that's fine. We don't care who you are. We're just looking for information. Yeah. Um, so there's that way you can message me or George on Facebook or Detective Walton. Andy Walton is the assigned detective to Linda's case, and she's with the Port Orchard Police Department. So you can call her as well. Okay. All right. Well, thank you both again. I hope you come back soon. Um, I know that, Jennifer, we had talked about you. Um, well, George, now that you're on, you, you should know. Uh, we were hoping maybe you can come back and talk about Rebecca's case. Uh, we have a lot sure. of people, a lot of listeners who, um, you know, I know we talked about uh, talked about it in the beginning, but uh, maybe dive a little deeper into, um, into that case. And 
Uh, thank you again, both of you, for doing what you're mm-hmm. doing. And I hope to um, hope you next time we're on, you've got some, uh, you know, maybe there's some updates to this case. So, friends, when you um, like they said, join the group. I'll post it in our on our social media pages. If you have any information, even if it's just the smallest thing that that comes up, or mm-hmm. if you know someone that was in that area, touch base with them. See if they know anything about Linda, yes. anything about that night, anybody that she was associated with. Um, no tip is is unimportant. So um, please, it could just be that one and that one person um, that comes forward. So thank you both again. Thank you, listeners. And we'll see you next time on Texas Wine and True Crime.